As part of my Substack series on growth endurance, I wanted to speak with the most successful late-stage SaaS companies out there. Service Titan is number seven on the Forbes Cloud 100 list of the world's top private cloud companies. So I was psyched to sit down with CEO Ara Medesian and learn how he has been able to grow his company so fast for so long. This conversation is super relevant to any CEO or other executive looking to sustain high growth rates long into the future. It will also have particular relevance for CEOs running vertical SaaS companies, since Service Titan offers software for the trades, initially residential plumbing, maintenance and repair businesses, and ultimately they expanded into many other verticals. You can read the lightly edited transcript or else listen to this audio version. Let's dive in. Ara, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your incredible growth trajectory over the last several years. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Allison, very grateful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to get into the why behind your historical growth trajectory. What do you think are the primary reasons why Service Titan has been able to grow as fast as it has for so long? I don't think we knew this at the beginning, but we've began to to realize it as we continued our journey. It turns out that the industry, I think first and foremost, is way bigger than we expected. These are the life support systems in those structures, plumbing systems, the air conditioning systems, electrical systems, and so on. And these are extremely critical for all of our lives. The trades typically don't rank very high on the glamour scale, but they absolutely do on the criticality scale. As you know, water, power, heat, air, these are life support systems that everyone needs. And you might not realize it until the, the air conditioning stops working in the middle of summer or the power goes out in the middle of the night or your toilet gets clogged during Thanksgiving dinner. And these plumbing companies, these air conditioning companies and so forth, these are the true heroes that they leave their families, drive across town to come and rescue yours. And we're equipping them with technology that helps them run a much better business and allows them to grow very significantly. So first and foremost, the market is massive. It's critical. And then the other important thing is in the world of business software, you only earn your customers paycheck or revenue from them if you deliver outsized value. And that has to come in the form of you help them increase their revenue or you help them lower their costs. And thankfully, service tied does both and does both in spades. We have customers that they might be a million dollar annual shop that'll grow to five, a five will grow into 10, a 10 will grow into 50, a 50 will grow into 100. And now we have customers that do over a billion dollars of, of revenue. And a lot of that growth they have seen on the service tied platform. I'd love to dive into those two primary reasons you mentioned, you know, the market and then the ROI demonstration in a lot more depth. You mentioned, I think you might have used the word, you were surprised to find how large the market was. Obviously, I'm sure as a founder, you had a strong instinct around how big the market could be, but certainly you were a category creator, you know, pushing this along. So it's, it's hard to know in advance. Do you think that there might have been some snooty Silicon Valley people in the early days who thought this is a demographic of folks that aren't quote unquote sophisticated enough for software or, you know, the adoption curve is going to be super painful. And, and if so, how did you respond to those folks in the early days? I think that's absolutely right. I think the reason why something like service time didn't exist until now is because this market has always consistently been underserved 
by every type of vendor, whether technology or otherwise. Uh, I think there are a lot of misconceptions and misperceptions about the industry. As I've shared, these companies run very sophisticated businesses. These businesses have all the same functions that any other business has, you know, the same functions that service time has. They have marketing, they have sales, they have customer service, they have payroll, they have inventory. I guess it's one thing the tech company doesn't have, but every other function they have. And so they need the same type of software that we use. Today, almost every tech company uses something like a Salesforce.com to supercharge their sales teams. They use something like a Marketo to do marketing automation. They use something like a NetSuite to manage the back office and introduce efficiency and streamline everything. And so contractors have all the same needs, but they just can't use these off-the-shelf generic horizontal solutions because their workflows are a little bit unique. And so they need software that is specifically designed around their workflows. And that's where service tidying shines. Do you think there are any lessons here for other vertical SaaS companies that are trying to push their way into a market that might have an initial software stack, but where, again, there's some sort of category creation involved? Absolutely. I, I think the paradigm you know, going a decade back was if you're building a software company, you pick a category like CRM or ERP or whatever else. You pick that category, you build software for that category, and then you go and try and find as many different uh, heterogeneous types of companies that can use that software versus the vertical software playbook is you pick an industry, you pick a type of customer, and then you build software tailor-made for their workflows. And that then earns you the opportunity. If you do a great job at that, you earn the trust and the ability to then build all the other types of software that that type of customer might need. And that's how service tidying started. Originally, you know, when you think about managing plumbing and air conditioning companies, a lot of it typically revolves around scheduling and dispatching. You have all these technicians in the field that need to go to different jobs, different locations. And so there's a lot of emphasis on routing, scheduling, dispatching. And that's where we got our original start. But as we did a great job of serving that need, we earned the opportunity to then offer for example, specific marketing automation software that is designed for contractors. We earn the ability to offer a specific price book or the close analog might be like CPQ for our customers to then offer things like an integrated telephony system that brings very strong, incredible ROI and unique benefits that no generic telephony system can bring. And so the service side journey has evolved from this pretty large core set of functionality but then we have added many other product categories that are specifically designed for contractors. And as you can imagine, there is still plenty of opportunity to create even more of these products. I'm wondering about the growth in your market and when you got convinced that actually it was super large and growing super quickly, would, would grow super quickly in the future. Was the market growing at the same rate every year? Was there some year in your history where there was a breakout. I'd love for you to sort of take me through the history of the company, your market. Certainly the market has been very sizable for a very long time. You know, the need for running water, for refuge from the biting cold or scorching heat, the need for electricity, et cetera, it has always been there. And the market has generally always been growing. It's very resilient. It's grown through all the you know, recessions and close to depressions that, that I know of. Interestingly, it's grown even faster recently. 
I hope through a combination of two things. One, these businesses have become even more sophisticated in the past few years. This is where you have really seen the creation of these very large enterprises. Back before Service Titan, I can't remember too many companies that passed, you know, the 10 million a year revenue scale, especially the 50, particularly the 100 million. And now there are a lot of these companies that have grown, you know, some have grown from like 50 million to now over a billion dollars in revenue. And then the second thing is during COVID, as more and more people locked down and as the importance of the home grew, people wanted greater safety, comfort in their home, and they were even more willing to make these investments. So I suspect B in the street did grow slightly even more as a result of that. But I do think it's always been big. It's always been growing. Certainly the overall trades sector itself, right, has always been, as you said, critical and growing. And it sounds like there's been demand for software and then it accelerated over the past two years to the couple of factors that you mentioned. On the subject of COVID to start, do you think that there are other lessons for vertical SaaS companies in terms of many different kinds of industries just becoming more comfortable with technology recently? Is is it not just that there was more demand from end customers for the trades because they were staying at home, but is it also that these trades companies were sort of forced to become more comfortable with technology because of the pandemic? I do think so to a certain degree. So certainly as the lockdowns happened, even these businesses needed to adapt and in many cases, operate in a remote environment, and that accelerated the need for technology. I think the other really interesting thing, just the takeaway for vertical software businesses going through any kind of macro climate, whether it's something like COVID or it's today's all the talk about what the macroeconomic climate is. You know, one of the things we did as soon as COVID hit and as soon as the lockdowns happened, pretty much all businesses were shut. And then within a couple of weeks, I think the world realized you can't live without getting your toilets unclogged or fixing your air conditioning in the middle of summer as 118 degrees in Phoenix. And so the, these trades were labeled as essential. And at that point, we worked with our customer base. We worked with the industry to figure out how we can actually help them not just survive through this crisis, but to thrive in this crisis. And so as we looked at the performance across our customer base, we realized that up until the lockdown, while industry revenue was starting to decline, underneath that trend, there were actually plenty of businesses that were thriving through this period. And so as we reached out to them and we asked them what they were doing differently, they shared with us how their communities had greater demand for certain indoor air quality products that eliminated germs and bacteria in the home. They shared with us what steps they were taking to protect their technicians, to protect the homeowners, so that homeowners felt comfortable inviting a technician to them. And they shared all these best practices about how they had adapted their operations to continue to succeed in a COVID environment. And given this industry loves, you know, contractors love to help one another out. In many cases, direct competitors. It's just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. We asked them, it's fantastic that you're thriving, but as you can imagine, there's an entire industry of other contractors that could benefit from all this sage advice you have. Do you mind if we share this with others? And they, all of them said, absolutely not. Feel free to share. In fact, we would love to share it with you. And so we started hosting these webinars for our customer base where we talked about how they can adapt their operations. And immediately this entire industry lifted to the point where revenue was 
across our customer base was higher than it was pre-COVID. And so our customers are incredible entrepreneurs. They're very innovative and they adapted their operations to really succeed and thrive during this period. And they were able to take care of their communities because you can imagine how much help everybody needs. You also mentioned that one of the reasons why your market has become really prime for software sales in the last few years is because you're seeing larger and larger customers with larger and larger amounts of revenue. Is that because of any kind of private equity roll-ups that are happening in the industry or, or what's driving that? So we're seeing it actually across both fronts. There are individual owners and operators that are not private equity backed that are growing their businesses to incredible heights. I mean, I have one customer that grew it from when he was on service Titan. When he first joined, he was probably around 5 million. Today, he's over 200 million. Did it organically, no PE money. And then, of course, we have plenty of private equity backed. I think out of the like top 25 private equity backed, the vast majority chose service Titan as the platform to standardize on. And the feedback that we've heard directly from them is that the reason why this is possible today is because of service. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean service Titan is is the only reason for their growth, but it's one of the key ingredients that makes for this roll-up approach to be managed well and easily. They've told us a service Titan. I have seen this PE roll-up phenomenon in several different industries, and I've seen it drive software purchases. I think Part of it might just be that some PE firms are very operationally oriented. They want to optimize the go-to-market, for example, maybe in your case, or customer service and other aspects, the operations of the companies they buy and bring together. It also seems like in some cases, the PE firm is looking for rolled up metrics across all of the locations or units that they're buying. And software is the key to that. Is that relevant for your software sale as well? Absolutely. The rolled up metrics is critical for them to be able to manage a business at such scale without having to try and do everything manually, which not only is incredibly costly, but just very error prone. And it's hard to get the metrics in real time if it's manual. So that is absolutely one key component. The other is service tidying is not just about managing a business. Service tidying automates and enforces all the best practices that lead to the highest outcomes. So if a PE firm has rolled out 50 locations, they don't just want reporting on how well those 50 locations are doing. They know what the right marketing process, the right sales process, the right customer service process is. And they want the software automate and enforce all those processes across the 50 locations so that all 50 have the highest closed rates on sales, the highest average tickets, the highest level of lead generation. And that's what Service Titan uh, allows them to do very seamlessly. I'd love to understand a little bit more about how you've been able to build up your revenue over the years. Obviously, organic growth, as we've been discussing, has been super important to you. What about other inorganic sources of revenue, or maybe some of them will be organic, but more require more deliberate effort? For example, geographical expansion, launching new products, acquisitions, new verticals. How have you thought about your revenue build over time? Service Tidy started as a single product company focused on a single customer segment. We had a, effectively a scheduling and dispatching software that was specific, frankly, to just one trade, only plumbing companies and not all plumbing companies, but only residentially focused plumbing companies. So plumbing companies that would only service a home, not a commercial building and not all 
residential plumbing companies, but only residential plumbing companies that specialize in service and replacement work. So if your toilet's clogged, that's the plumber we would sell to. But if you're building a new house, a residential home from the ground up, the plumber that built the plumbing infrastructure was not our customer. We took an approach that was very unique at the time, because at the time, the approach was, let's build software and try and sell it to everyone. And the challenge there is, you build something that is okay for everybody, but not amazing for anybody. And in the world of business software, people are not really willing to pay for okay. They want amazing, especially at the price points that, that make for uh, a great business. And by taking that approach, sure, it limited the number of, you know, quote unquote customers or logos we could sell to, but it allowed for this extraordinary ROI that we could deliver for a residentially focused plumbing service company. Once we were able to deliver incredible ROI, achieve product market fit, have customers that loved the product and sang it from the rooftops and, you know, which quickly accelerate our customer acquisition. Only then did we then methodically expand into the next customer segment, which was at the time into HVAC. And HVAC has, you know, largely call it 80 to 90% of the same needs, but it has an incremental 10 to 20% of functionality required for that trade. Successfully delivered there and then kept using that same playbook, went to electrical, went to garage door, and now we're in 10 different trades. We are also now expanding into commercial and we are also expanding into lighter weight construction focused companies. So that was our expansion on a customer segment basis. The other type of, and, and we have many more trades to go to in the future. So that's one growth vector for the company. The second growth vector was the product expansion. On the product stand, originally, yeah, it was, I would call it medium capability across every function of contracting business needs. Medium level of capability in sales, marketing, customer service, inventory, payroll, financials, etc. What we then learned is customers also wanted very high-end professional level of capabilities uh, in each of these areas. So then we built what we call a pro product, which is effectively an add-on product that you pay additional money for, for each one of these functions. So today we now have a marketing pro product that customers pay extra money for to get very professional marketing capabilities. We have a reputation management product. We have a price book product, integrated telephony product, and so on. And so that's been the second expansion vector. And of course, as you can imagine, the, the product portfolio will continue to expand in the future. And then, of course, like the easiest expansion vector is even if you're single product, even if you're single market, is actual customer acquisition. And there, you know, the better the product is, the higher the ROI, the faster word of mouth is going to travel and the more customers you get quickly. And then the other expansion benefit or revenue expansion we benefit from, which might be uh, shared with some companies, is because our software helps our customers grow and significantly, you know, talking about stories, one to 10 million, 10 to 100. As they grow, they hire more technicians. And the first thing that they do when they hire an the technician is add another service titan license. So the beauty of our business model is very much aligned with our customer success. As they grow their business, we earn more money. I'm glad that you brought that up. Again, the fact that you're super aligned with your customer's desire for growth in their own sales and marketing, because I wanted to dive into this earlier. How are you tracking the ROI that you 
delivered to your customers. I think this is relevant for a lot of companies across many different software industries. Now, obviously, because we're in the strange macro environment, you really have to prove that you know your software is delivering value. And I also think it's relevant for selling into industries that may not be accustomed to buying this, you know, whatever type of software you're selling. They, they need maybe more data to show that it's worth it to renew. So how have you convinced people that you've demonstrated ROI over time? Great advice for any founder. We are very methodical, like most things, about understanding what are the key metrics our customers care about in their business. So understanding the drivers of their business and then actually measuring it. So of course, the, the top level one is revenue. They care about revenue. They care about profitability. But then what are the drivers of revenue? So we will track things like how many leads do they generate? What is their conversion from a lead to a sale? What is the what they call the average ticket or the revenue per sale? And we'll break down all the drivers and we'll actually track it and we'll make sure we're delivering on our commitment to our customers. Because in the sales process, you know, we're not going in there saying this is scheduling functionality, this is this fetching function. We're talking about the value they're going to get, how this is going to help them increase revenue, increase their average ticket, increase their close rate, increase the number of leads they generate. It's very important to us that we deliver on our commitments to our customers. And so we track it and make sure our customers are seeing the gains that we talked about. And that's when we know whether we built the right thing and built it in the right way, such that customers actually get value so they continue to do business. When you track those metrics, I'm assuming you're showing them in a dashboard in your product to your customers, right? It's not something you just like report out in an it's very well highlighted in the app so that contractors are aware at all times. And do you benchmark customers against each other? So for example, I often found this helpful when I was at Gainsight, we would tell customers, okay, you know, based on your particular type of business, where you're located, how large you are, you're in the maybe bottom 30 percentile of companies. So actually, there's a lot more room for you to improve because companies like you are getting more ROI. It could be a tactic for convincing them to work with us more on best practices, invest more time in the software. Have you done anything like that? Or I'd love to hear your version of that. That is absolutely a great idea and opportunity for improvement at service tidy within the app. Where this happens today is we also have the largest community of contractors in a Facebook group. And every day is just one contractor posting their service tidy dashboard after another in that group and they're comparing everything, revenue growth, average ticket, close rate, technician performance, et cetera. So it happens organically, but yes, we do want to make that available to customers in the app. Yeah, it definitely spurs the competitive dynamic, right? Which I think can result in good outcomes for everybody. I'd love to talk a little bit about quote unquote modern growth tactics like product-like growth and understand a little bit more how that might apply in your vertical. I imagine when you got started, you were probably doing some kind of traditional inside sales outbound. I'm guessing you should correct me if I'm wrong. Has, has that evolved over time or you know, how, how have you kind of embraced more product-like growth tactics in your strategy? We certainly do a lot of the traditional activities. We do a lot of outbound efforts to, to talk to contractors. We're at a lot of contracting events. We do a lot of digital uh, advertising very targeted. And then on the product-led growth for customer acquisition, what we have found is the best type of product-led growth is when the product delivers so much value to a customer 
given how tight-knit this industry is, now every contractor talks to every contractor, service time comes up organically in a lot of these conversations. And so we get a lot of inbound requests. There are opportunities to do more product-led growth directly through the app in the future. And these are things we will explore. I'd love to talk about how you think about constructing and managing your board. This tends to be a topic that a lot of founders start to learn about around maybe Series B, Series C. They've raised a couple of rounds at this point. They have at least a couple of VCs on their board. They might be looking for an independent. And, you know, they're trying to figure out what do I do with this group of people who I'm supposed to meet with on a quarterly basis? And it feels like they're my boss, but really I'm in charge. (laughs) What tips would you have for folks about how to approach their board? Yeah. So if we're talking about how to approach existing board members, I think we should also consider just how to construct a board if you have the opportunity to construct or reconstruct. Ultimately, I think founders need to think about what value and what contribution do they want from board members in what types of areas. Is it general business experience on how to generally build and scale tech companies, the expertise in a particular area like customer success or sales or product? If you can be intentional and thoughtful about what you need, it becomes easier to find the right board member that is going to deliver on the value. But then irrespective of what type of expertise you want, I think the other critical thing is just alignment of values and intentions. If you have generally smart people with good intentions, with the same values as you do, you often will arrive at the same answer after robust and healthy debate. That doesn't mean that everybody will always have the same opinion. The opinions will be diverse and varied and different. But after robustly debating it, as long as you have the same incentives and interests, very high likelihood that with the right level of logical reasoning, data, anecdotes, intuition, you'll arrive at at the right answer. I love the focus on values. And I totally agree with you that alignment of values across the board is super important for its strong functioning. How do you test a board member in an interview for values fit? You have to be systematic about almost everything in business. If you want to find values alignment with a board member, you got to treat it like any other interview. Identify. I assume most companies have memorialized what their values are. In our case, it's changing lives, achieving the extraordinary and building a dream team. And then I would think hard about what are the key questions you can ask that best surface this individual's alignment with those values. And I think that should be a candid and transparent conversation. It's the same conversation that we had with our first institutional investor, whom you know quite well, Byron Dieter. He can tell you all about that meeting. We told him how important it is that we have people that have the same vision that we do. But more importantly, for us, this is a personal story. You know, we started Service Titan because our dads, Vahed, my co-founder, his dad, my dad, we both contracted. We started the business to help them. And so every customer that we earn their trust and partnership, for us, we see our dad in them. And so it's very personal that we deliver on every commitment we've ever made to a customer. And we asked Byron, we'd love nothing more than to partner with you, but we need to be certain about this because there is no divorce in this type of marriage with an investor. We're going to do everything we can to build the biggest and best business that we can, but we're going to do it the right way. And we're going to do it by taking care of customers. Are you aligned with that? And there will be certain decisions we will need to make that in the short term may seem like a waste of money. But we know this industry, we know how tight-knit it is, and in the long term, it will pay dividends. And 
Interestingly enough, one of our largest customers today, I remember four years ago, he had just signed up for service side and went live. The implementation had not gone well. I didn't know him very well at the time, but my chief revenue officer, Ross, came to me and shared with me that we had this customer problematic implementation. This is how much it was going to cost to fix the implementation. And it was a six-figure number. And I said, why are you coming to me? And he said, because it's a lot of money. I said, you know our rule. We take care of customers. And we ended up doing right by this customer. That customer has now become Service Tidy's number one evangelist, probably referred tens, if not a hundred million of business to us in the past few years. I mean, at the time, I had no idea who he was. I had no idea it would turn out to be this big. But today, it may have been literally the best financial investment I've ever made. And that's how this industry works. You honor your word, you do right by people, and our customers have built our business for us. And if you violate that principle, they may do the opposite, right? That's just the nature of business and the nature of the connected world is today. Do right by people, they will do right by you. I love that story. You know your audience here as well, you know, given how I come from customer success. <laughs> I love that focus on investing customers. And that's a great example of wanting to make sure you're aligned with your board right on a basic value. I'd be curious to learn more about what recommendations you would have for founders in managing their board on the topic of growth. Obviously, we're in strange macroeconomic times. Last year, the motto in board meetings was largely growth at all costs. You, know, you just raise a lot of money at a sky high valuation, invest, 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 grow, 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 higher, 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 drive out your competition. This year, valuations are much lower. Everyone's trying to conserve burn. It's no longer about growth at all costs. How do you recommend that founders manage their board through this dramatic transition in tone. Do you think it should be that dramatic? I mean, if you're a successful company who has a ready market, strong product market fit, you know, you're demonstrating ROI to your customers, should you still be more conservative about your burn? I'm challenging the consensus here a little bit. I'd, I'd love to get your take. I don't think this is as much of an argument about generally what's the right approach. Is it growth or profitability or how much for growth and how much for profitability? I think the conversation today is about what is right in this market. And if you take the argument of the extremes, when the cost of capital is really, really, really low and you can raise a billion dollars, hypothetical example, and give up only 1% of a company and you can invest in growth and everything else and grow faster, probably should take the billion dollars for 1% of the company. If you're in an economic climate where the cost of capital is so high that to raise even $50 million, you're going to have to give away 99% of the company. Do you want to spend years building a company that five years from now, you're only going to have 1% of it? It's the argument of the extreme. Today, the cost of capital is really high, very hard to raise money for many companies. And even those that can, it's expensive. And so it makes a lot of sense to reduce burn. It makes a lot of sense to reduce investment in things that are not critical. And it goes back to the opportunity cost and like the ROI threshold that you're willing to invest in. And that threshold has gone way higher now, way, way higher. And so projects that made sense a year ago when the cost of capital was lower, no longer make sense to invest in. And great businesses are adapting as hard as it is because we ultimately are not in the business of good markets and bad markets. We're in, we're in the business of creating great, significant global impact. And it enduring durable companies. And we will have to go through great markets, bad markets. This probably won't be the first and only time we go through this. And we have to adapt each time market conditions change and great companies are doing just sovereign. 
our last question for you. If you had one final tip to give to vertical SaaS founders, what would it be? I would actually pick three tips. One, take a meaningfully sized vertical. And most leagues verticals are. Two, the stronger the ROI, the greater business you're going to have. So service tightening has spent years and lots of money building software that is, provides transformational levels of ROI that it's hard for me to find a lot of other examples. And then three, you got to do it the right way. You got to take care of customers. That's the only way to build a great big business in vertical software because everybody knows each other. Great tips. Ara, thank you so much for this very enlightening conversation. It was a lot of fun. Allison, thank you so much. Very honored to be here. Had a blast and always great to see you. 